0: training a deep learning model involves operations over tensors. A tensor is a multi-dimensional array of numbers. For several years, GPUs were used for these linear algebra calculations, and that's because graphics chips are built to efficiently process matrix operations. Tensor processing consists of linear algebra operations that are similar in some ways to graphics processing, but not identical Deep learning workloads do not run as efficiently on these conventional GPUs, graphical processing units, as they would on specialized chips that are built specifically for deep learning. In order to train deep learning models more efficiently, new hardware needs to be designed with tensor processing in mind. Xin Wang is a data scientist with the Artificial Intelligence Products Group at Intel, and he joins today's show to discuss deep learning hardware and FlexPoint, which is a way to improve the efficiency of space that tensors take up on a chip. Shen presented his work at NIPS, the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference, and we also talked about what he saw at NIPS that excited him. Full disclosure Intel, where Shen works, is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Shin Wong is a data scientist with the Artificial Intelligence Products Group at Intel. Shin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Today we're talking about deep learning and its impact on hardware because it is such a widely used workload type that we actually want to change the hardware that our deep learning workloads are running on. And we're going to get into that, but I I want to just start with talking about the state of deep learning kind of where we are at the end of 2017 beginning of 2018 because you were just at NIPS and at NIPS there were all kinds of discoveries announced all throughout the stack. What are some of the coolest deep learning success stories that you've seen recently?
1: Well I think one of my favorite uh, recent deep learning successes I should say Probably it's machine learning in general is definitely alpha go zero. I think, you know, deep learning as part of machine learning has gained a lot of momentum these days, but deep learning itself is basically just a, a very fancy function approximator. And I think at NIPS this year, we see a lot of very cool examples of combining deep learning with traditional machine learning techniques. So, You know, in general, deep learning actually requires a lot of, the traditional deep learning uh, requires a lot of data to train, but we see a lot of nice techniques, for example, like self-learning, meta-learning techniques that allow, you know, a very high-performance system to be built with very few training data, or in the case of a game playing, no data at all. So
0: when you look at the success stories across all of the different domains why why is it that deep learning is able to be a successful application in such a wide scope of different domains
1: i think you know the general answer to this question is really twofold you know the basically the theory of deep neural networks and the current way of training deep neural networks are already there for decades. And it's widely believed that the why recently, in the past decade, it picked up uh, such big momentum is because number one, we have a deluge of data from all aspects of our life, all industries. And second is, you know, a lot of computational power. So this is really not there, both of these factors back in, you know, in 1990s, for example. So this is why deep learning has gained so much momentum and has become so successful.
0: For people who are less familiar with it, why don't you just describe a typical deep learning task? We've, I mean, we've explored it in depth in previous episodes, but I do like to hear it from multiple people. So describe what a typical deep learning task
1: is. Right. I can uh, explain probably in uh, using a very simple example. It's probably, you know, everywhere in the introductory deep learning. Let's say take a very simple task like recognizing uh, or classifying a certain, you know, group of data like images. You have a lot of images and each one of them have a certain label on it signifying the content of that image like cats or dogs. And basically, you build a deep neural network that has many layers, and it has many, many parameters of all those layers. And they have, basically, it gives you a, a deep nonlinear transformation and to approximate a function that takes into it data, and it gives you the label. And this basically, the, this kind of explains how inference, what we call a does in deep learning, is basically just like forward passing a piece of data, and the deep neural network will output a label. That's the prediction. And a deep neural networks are actually trained you know, th- through a lot of data by doing what I just described, just you know, forward passing. And also, the, the output w- will be compared to the target. Let's say, in um, you know, the training data, every example uh, data point is labeled, and there is a certain loss function that you can design to penalize errors in the prediction, and this error is going to be backpropagated through the network, so basically in the form of the gradient of the error with respect to its parameters. And this is basically this you know the second operation involved in training. And the third one is basically an um, optimization step. Basically, you update the parameter of the network so that uh, the network will actually adjust itself toward a direction that gives you a better prediction.
0: You often hear, hear the term tensor associated with deep learning. Remind us what a tensor is.
1: You can think of tensor as a generalization of vectors and matrices. Basically, you know, it it's like a structure that that gives you a, a multilinear algebra on top of a vector space. So, basically, in deep neural networks, a lot of you know values can be organized into multi-dimensional arrays. So these are. Basically, the tensors what we are referring to, for example, like activations, weights, these things can all be gradients. these things can all be tensors. And the um, tensor operations are basically just linear operations. And these are basically the most expensive or, you know, the, the majority of the computation of a deep learning task.
0: When we look at a tensor as a data structure, how is a tensor laid out in memory or on disk
1: typically just like a, any multi-dimensional array structure so it's basically a kind of a you can think of it as just a, a multi-dimensional data structure so it's pretty much like a linear layout but you have certain uh, you know different levels of strides that defines the axes of these and dimensions and axes of the, of the data structure
0: we take a deep learning operation and we're looking at it at the programmer level, for example, the the Python level, or maybe you're looking at a specific framework. Take me through how that task looks at different levels of compilation. If I compile it, you know, from the Python world down to the lowest level, and I'm going to run it on specific hardware, how does it look at those different levels of compilation?
1: So I can... Probably just give you a glimpse, a view of that. So, so if you run a deep learning task, let's say just a training of deep neural network, you typically just describe your deep neural network and uh, you know all your data, cost functions, optimizers in a framework. Basically, you know there are a lot of Python-based frameworks, and these these are basically the way you describe the the model at the algorithm level, and then it's gonna, going to be um, you know, it converted into intermediate representation, typically a computational graph. And th- that is going to be further, you know, compiled to a kind of machine specific version that uh, can be run on, you know, all kinds of infrastructures, hardware infrastructures, uh, like CPUs and GPUs, which are the most um, common uh, hardware that you see these days.
0: And so at the lowest level, What kinds of operations are being done to execute a deep learning task? So when we talk about how the deep learning task is being executed at the hardware level... What's going on there?
1: Right. So I think for the current status of deep neural networks, main operations down there are basically just dense linear algebra operations, basically multiplications and additions of, uh, you know, accumulations uh, of huge uh, matrices. So it's basically... There's probably going to be differences in the future because, you know, deep learning is also evolving very fast. But currently, generally speaking, deep neural networks, the the lower level operations are dominated basically by linear algebra.
0: And what kinds of resources is a deep learning task consuming? It, it Like it, when we think about from a higher level perspective, across, you know, when we run a big deep learning task, are we doing the, is there is there lots of memory that's associated, and I guess you could break this into training or actually just a classification instance. Like if I train a classification model, that's one set of questions. And then if I actually classify a given piece of data, that's another question. So what kinds of resources are we consuming in these different deep learning tasks? Are we consuming lots of memory or disk space or CPU or multiple machines? What are the bottlenecks?
1: Actually, you're absolutely right. And the story is quite different between uh, training and inference. So, you know, just let's say take inference first. Actually, inference can be very cheap because it's just a forward pass. And, you know, a lot of, you know, so, so basically you need a memory to hold all the parameters of your network, certainly, and and the forward pass basically just take a batch of your data and, and go through the network. Actually, training can be a lot more expensive in in terms of both memory and computation. So in general, deep learning is really not cheap, uh, especially for training. And think about the additional steps that you need for training. And uh, When you back prop- uh, propagate, you really actually need to store the, all the activation uh, values through all the layers when you fprop. Uh, forward propagation and you also need a um, you know if you are your models are, are huge and that's typically the case uh, you know the modern deep learning uh, deep neural networks can have millions and millions of parameters and so in in this case the bottlenecks are really number one a lot of computation you need to To be uh, done those dense tensor operations on these data structures. And number two, there is a lot of data being moved around, and you need to do a lot of reads and writes uh, to memory.
0: How parallelizable are these deep learning jobs? I guess we should, we should probably talk more about training, because training seems like the more interesting, if we're talking about training versus inference, uh, training seems like it's much more intense. So when we talk about training a model, how parallelizable is that
1: I think you know there are uh, a lot of uh, levels that we can talk about this Uh, so If there there are actually a lot of parallel, uh, you know, training schemes, for example, you can divide your data. For example, if I have huge batches, you can actually divide data. This is called data parallelism, or you can uh, have model parallelism. Basically, it's kind of dividing your weight matrices, for example. So they they have their advantages and disadvantages. So I I think, you know, this is not a topic today, but I think, you know, uh, there are a lot of advancement in this area. So I think the, this problem is really a kind of deep learning specific problem. So it is, it, it has something to do with the typical arrangement of deep neural networks.
0: We did a show with Will Sentence, who I think you right. work with, right. and he was talking about this model parallelism versus data parallelism and how you have to figure out are there mathematical prop? Well, if I remember correctly, are there mathematical properties where if I break up my data and I feed my data to two separate instances of the same model, can I just average those two models together to get one model at the end of it? (laughs) and, it sounded like that's possible like you can do that which is pretty interesting
1: right in in the basically like the stochastic uh, gradient descent is is the, like the common optimization method that we use to train so in this case actually you can actually divide the data in, in average later but for this particular scheme i think a drawback is like you, you need a you know a, you know at, at the end of the the propagation you you basically need a kind of broadcast all the, the gradients to, to all the workers, like different uh, nodes that's running uh, the same model.
0: Getting to hardware, why does the typical hardware that we use, like in my iPhone or my laptop, why are these chips... Actually, we could even talk about server chips, modern server chips, most of the the modern server chips. Why do these chips have difficulty processing deep learning workloads efficiently?
1: I wouldn't say that it's, a, it's a difficult because, you know, right now, uh, at least all the, you know, deep learning tasks are, are run on these general purpose um, uh, hardware, like CPUs and GPUs. And most of the training actually are done on GPUs so i think the but it, it's fair to call it not very efficient is because these general purpose hardware are designed for all types of computations and has its generality and the generality is actually pretty costly in, in when you come to pretty specific workloads of a specific kind, just like you mentioned earlier. Like if, if you have a specific type of math that you do again and again, and it has a specific type of processing and the memory read and write patterns, then a lot of general kind of procedures may, may be streamlined, and then you, you can save a lot.
0: So in Bitcoin mining, we've seen the rise of ASICs, these application-specific integrated circuits... I'm not a hardware guy, so these things were some of my, just learning about Bitcoin was some of my first understanding of why you would want to have specific chips for specific operations. Because there are certain operations that a Bitcoin miner is going to do so often that it makes sense to have a specialized chip for it. And this is also the case for deep learning. There are specializations that you can make to a chip to optimize it. For deep learning, what are some of the specializations that you can make to a chip to make to optimize?
1: I think you know. I'm glad that you brought this up, Jeff. And this is actually a perfect example of you know showing why a specialized hardware can can gain you a lot. So, like Bitcoin mining is a specific is a case. It, I think it you know it it might dif- differ from deep learning in in few ways. But in general, it's the same idea. So if you have general purpose hardware, like CPU or GPUs, these are basically like kind of one tool fits all type of, uh, you know, solutions. So you can basically um, solve any kind of problems. But in the particular case of Bitcoin uh, mining, it's a very kind of Fixed problem with a very fixed solution, so you basically just need to crunch a lot of numbers to, you know, pipe through like hash functions. So it is um, a perfect example to show how you can basically use a specific hardware to, you know, number one save silicon and you know at the same time save power, and also re- reach your solution faster. Uh, but deep learning is a little bit different in this case because deep neural networks are kind of diverse. Uh, It has its fixed pattern, yes, and and this has its kind of problem, type of problem, but the problem size is more variable than a specific case of Bitcoin mining. And I think also number two is like Bitcoin mining. Algorithmically, it is kind of trivial to parallelize, but deep learning, deep neural network architectures come in many different flavors, and we have recurrent neural networks too. You know more generalities may be need needed to to be put in there. so it's uh, you know in, in in terms of parallelizability and and also, I think there's another difference is basically um for the case of Bitcoin mining, energy is probably the primary concern over there. But you know for uh, you know deep learning use cases, you may also need to consider time and 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 energy, of course, is also a very important factor here.
0: So ultimately, new hardware needs to be designed with tensor processing in mind. The tensor is this multidimensional array. GPUs can efficiently process multidimensional arrays. Uh, My understanding is that much of the operations that we're doing with tensors is similar to the kinds of processing we're going to do on multidimensional arrays for graphics cards, why do we need something new? Why do we need new hardware specifically for deep learning? Can't we just reuse our GPUs?
1: Indeed, you know, the, as I mentioned, like dense tensor processing, dense tensor operations are basically the major part of uh, deep learning. The, the basically the all, all, you know, almost all the workload uh, is is there. So that's why you see GPUs are actually very useful these days for accelerating deep learning, especially in training. And you can think of GPU as a kind of specialized hardware in this sense. But there are several you know, major differences between graphics and deep neural networks training. And and, and also, you know, the, the deep learning hardware is also evolving. And these basically differences will, you know, basically kind of, determine the future of deep learning hardware. And I believe it's going to diverge significantly from, from graphics because uh, it, its it's demand is different. I think the number one difference is like, it's basically for deep learning, we also want to cut a lot of corners in terms of using uh, low precision. So this is some the topic of today, the the, the flex point. We're, it's, it's one of the schemes that use low precision. But graphics uh, typically use like single precision floating point, and that's the difference. And also for deep learning, we have a lot of new techniques of trying to basically grow a network or prune a network and make certain parameters more sparse and so on. And and this will basically you know deviate from dense matrix operations. So this may also result in some kind of different considerations in hardware. And also, there's a lot of kind of is a big bottleneck in moving data. So there's new type of deep learning hardware that's gonna you know move the processing pretty close to memory, or even use like emerging memory technologies to do computing itself. So this is a, another big difference. And also for the current GPU architecture so typically a lot of optimizations can be done by optimizing the hierarchy of memory caches and this for graphics and for deep learning these this optimization may be kind of different uh, for this and finally and deep learning is very different from graphics in that the size of the problem can be very big and And it's not a fixed one. So a lot of cases, you basically need to scale up the problem that you you want to have some kind of very fast networking uh, amongst your different nodes of your hardware. So you also want to have very good networking built in, which is not also required for graphics. The
0: first thing that you mentioned with trading off accuracy in order to improve efficiency, why is that okay to do in a neural network? Why can we sacrifice accuracy in exchange for efficiency? And I guess if you wanted to draw, in a, draw a comparison, why, why wouldn't you be able to do that in graphics, for example?
1: Right. I think, you know, this is basically the I would say it's basically the legacy because all of these mathematical underlying mathematical operations that we do, you know, on deep learning today and also on graphics, these are all from you know theory, and these theory all basically have very high precision numbers, and we we all started in theory with real numbers, and we have those standard formats, uh, typically floating point formats, that allow us to encode these values in a very efficient way with a certain bit width, for example, uh, sixteen, thirty-two, or 64 bits that gives you a very well-balanced dynamic range and a precision. So in these cases, basically, we kind of inherited that uh, in our current hardware. But as you said, we may cut corners further because if we want to make a specific processor for deep neural networks and if a certain layer, for example, and a certain tensor in a certain layer only requires, let's say, eight bits precision for a certain operation, and the values that's gonna be in this particular tensor seldom exceeds the encoding range, then it's pretty safe for us to use very cheap and low precision and and without taking any or you know significant hit on, on its performance.
0: Maybe, could you apply, uh, could you give an example? I think I feel like we should be a little more concrete here. So well, maybe the, is there an experiment that was run recently where they looked at maybe doing some sort of image classification training model, and then they lowered the accuracy of the n- numbers that were used to represent the different the weights on that model. And maybe there was just, you know, the model was still good enough despite reducing the accuracy. Are there any recent examples that come to mind?
1: So, yeah, I mean, th- this paper I'm going to talk about today, you know, it's basically like FlexPoint, 16-bit FlexPoint. Basically, this is a, a new numerical format that we invented. And this is exactly what we did. So this is a technology actually underlying the Intel Nirvana uh, neural network processor. And basically, we did an experiment by using this particular low precision format in 16-bit and compared to the basically the most commonly used uh, 32-bit single precision uh, floating point that's widely used in training today. And uh, we basically showed uh, tensor by tensor along every step of a training process that it actually matches pretty well in uh, deep learning, uh, like a training process of big, networks.
0: What do you mean by that? Can, can you explain that in, in a little more detail when you say it matches?
1: Basically, we look at several metrics. Just number one, we can you know just pull out certain tensors at a certain stage of training and see how it matches uh, numerically, like percentage of error. And also, we can train a network and use the network to do uh, inference basically like prediction of uh, certain class labels if it's a classifier, and you know we also train like uh, generative models. We can generate data and use other uh, metrics to evaluate how well the network performs. So uh, in both cases, we see a pretty good matching performance.
0: Let's go lower level. So one way that we can improve this lower level efficiency is by reducing the amount of space that each number takes up. So this is what you were saying with accuracy. We've got 8-bit integers, 16-bit integers, 64-bit integers. We have doubles. What are the numerical formats that we have historically used to represent our tensors?
1: So typically, right now, a lot of the training are done on single precision floating point. Basically, these are 32-bit floating point numbers. You mentioned one thing that's absolutely uh, important is the the number of bits. So the, the, the more bits you have, the higher precision you have basically and in integer cases it basically means you have uh, more integers you can represent so there are two notions that's important here it's uh, dynamic range and precision so precision I just explained and dynamic range is basically determined by how the the, the span between the smallest and the largest number you, you can encode so in the integer case it's pretty much the same as your precision because there's no uh, kind of an a, a, another value that tells you uh, how to scale it, but for floating point you uh, you also have an exponent within the the total number of bits, for example in a in a sixteen bit floating point, you have five bits of exponent, and basically, this is like a scientific notation, so you have an exponent actually tells you how. Uh, to put a radix point if you may so it basically moves along the uh, scale uh, in the log axis of, of your of, of your values and basically gives you kind of a logarithmic scaling so it will, Widen your range of encoding by a lot uh, with the same number of bits, so that's why floating points are widely used in scientific computing, and typically we have you know a single precision a double precision in our general scientific computing and you have uh, single precision mostly for graphics that's that's how we kind of inherited in in the GPU for our deep learning training
0: each number format has a dynamic range and a precision. Explain what these terms mean. What is dynamic range and what is precision?
1: Basically, dynamic range is the span between the smallest and the largest uh, absolute value that you can uh, represent in that format. And precision basically means, you know, how many representable numbers are there within the dynamic range. Yeah, so so basically for a specific, let's say, floating point number, the dynamic range is pretty much going to be determined by the exponent, the range of your exponent, and the precision is basically the number of bits that you use for the significant, and it's also called mantissa in the floating point.
0: So when we're using a number format that does not effectively capture the precision In a number. So if we if we have a number that is actually much, much longer than would fit in the number of bits that we have available, we need to quantize it. Is there anything interesting to say about quantization? When I think of quantizing, I think of just rounding up or down. Uh, Is quantizing anything more interesting than that?
1: Uh, right. So there are basically like th- three different types of quantization errors. You, you just mentioned one. So if within your encoding range, you basically round upward down a specific number, you, you, you incur a rounding error. But if you have a pretty very large number that you cannot represent by the largest representable number, then this is called overflow and also there's a uh, corresponding underflow basically a very small number that's smaller than the smallest number you can represent then it's going to be basically clipped to zero you know these all three types of uh, quantization errors may contribute to loss of performance in in the deep learning case
0: now just to take a step back here some people listening may not know the connection between hardware efficiency and number formats and and why like why does it matter that we are discussing how to get more efficiency out of our numerical representation how is that going to translate to better performance of these deep learning models at the hardware level if we're just all we're doing is reducing the amount of space it takes to to represent these numbers
1: indeed the representation basically the you know the quantization of numbers is not just the uh, amount of space uh, each number takes we basically do computations on these numbers so the operations are basically the the cost of computation so typically the computation is realized by specific logic on on the hardware uh, certain arithmetics so there's Two trends that's very important. Number one, it's pretty obvious. So if you have a lower precision, like fewer bits, then you use fewer, basically fewer transistors to do the logic. And it, it will result in a smaller footprint on your silicon and it consumes less power and it takes less time also. And the second trend, which is also very important, may not be so intuitive is integer arithmetic actually is cheaper uh, than floating point arithmetic at the same bit width so basically you we don't need to kind of separate so so basically the integer mu- multiplications can be very efficient In a specific case, let's say if we uh, go from the current training standard of uh, floating points 32-bit used in deep neural network training down to uh, 16-bit, then the um, floating point 16-bit, the half precision, will be a little more expensive than uh, pure integers in 16-bit.
0: So when we lower the precision of... Are we talking about lowering the precision of the weight? Is that specifically the type of number that we are lowering the precision of?
1: Right. So in in the current work that we published, we're basically trying to make it a general case. So it's, it's kind of, it sits one level lower than the algorithm or the network itself. So we don't care about what type of tensor it is. So for any tensor, we basically want to have a low precision representation of the values in it.
0: So literally all matrix operations that are occurring at the lowest level, you're just taking those operations and making them less precise. And from the results that you've seen, it has not been problematic. They have been, quote, unreasonably effective. Is that right?
1: Right. So specifically for inference, you, you do see a lot of works reporting that if you even quantize the values very, very aggressively to even binary, and and it, the network still performs pretty well, but that's for inference, and you know it's it's probably not the case for many cases when you do training. And actually, indeed, a lot of people found that uh, you will uh, have a significant hit, you'll know, take a hit on your performance of training. Uh, when you quantize numbers uh, very aggressively, even you know down to 16 bit. So just as we mentioned that, if you kind of do some extra engineering to quantize aggressively for certain um, tensors in your network and leave others in high precision, and typically you know for uh, activations and gradients, you can probably use a pretty low precision, but when you accumulate it into uh, changes of weights and these things are uh, you know because of the you know continuous nature in in the underlying math, you probably need to accumulate in a pretty high precision so this is actually something that you you can potentially do uh, to figure out the optimal allocation of different precisions for different parts of your network and, and trying to, you know, cut down the cost at certain parts, but not others. But uh, here, what we are trying to achieve with 16-bit flex point is to have kind of a universal down quantization to 16-bit. And in in this case, basically, you don't even need to care about uh, doing extra engineering in this, you know, doing this allocation.
0: Do we have any ideas why it's okay to lose precision at the inference level but it's not okay to lose precision at the training level do we have any deterministic uh, understanding of that or is this just based off of experimental data
1: right i think this is this came uh, as a surprise to many people when you actually uh, very aggressively quantize uh, like weights and activations in a network you know some binary networks just taken from you know Trained network from with full precision actually works pretty well, and and this is really kind of puzzling. And I think uh, there's a interesting theoretical question. A lot of people are actually researching on that, and we see some pretty recent results giving us hints on why this actually works. And the same reason I think you know uh, backpropagation of gradients probably should. Be the same, uh, and and given the similarity of these, and I think the biggest problem is, uh, is for training, and the training doesn't work in low precision is pretty much because of the third step, uh, which is up- updating the weights. Basically, it's 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 basically based on a gradient-based uh, optimization procedure. So, you know, the the gradient basically requires a Continuous and differentiable structure of the functions defined on that. So, and typically in many cases, when you uh, represent a number, uh, even in the, you know, 16 bit, if your encoding range of your weight update is does not overlap at all with the weight uh, itself, then you 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 don't end up doing anything there. So, this is always a. Uh, a problem. For now, in this particular paper, we're not investigating in those very aggressive quantization schemes, let's say uh, six, you know, lower than 16-bit. Uh, so we're only sitting at the 16-bit and ask the question whether we can use integer arithmetic and integer formats on our accelerator processors to make training work.
0: So we've now explored some of the trade-offs between the different number systems when we're talking about representing our tensors and we can now get into flex point which is a new number format that you created explain what flex point is
1: basically flex point is just a kind of data structure wrapping around an integer tensor. So basically, the flex point tensor is an integer tensor in essence. So every element in this tensor is uh, an integer. So in this particular case of this paper, we studied the 16-bit. In in this particular case, then, every element in this tensor is a 16-bit integer. Because a low-precision integer has a very limited dynamic range, so in order to make it more like a uh, floating point, we need to be able to freely scale it. And it turned out to be necessary for deep learning training because uh, for many different tensors, they have different dynamic ranges. And a lot of tensors, uh, especially like gradients, naturally, it kind of decays during the course of training. So the dynamic range also needed to be um, Dynamically adjusted. So, in addition to the integer tensor, it has an externally managed uh, exponent. It's just like an exponent in a fl- uh, floating point, but it's shared across all the integer elements of the tensor. And in addition to that, we also have some other, you know, data structures associated with each tensor that gives you a kind of recorded history, a recent history of the scale of the tensor, so that the uh, the optimization, uh, the prediction algorithms of the tensor scale can be carried out.
0: Explain that name, FlexPoint. Where does that come from?
1: Oh, okay. I don't know exactly where the, I think maybe flex comes from flexible. Um, I think it's basically a, a very s- similar idea to, you know, what is in the literature called blocks, a block fixed point. So it's basically a fixed point uh, format. So all the elements inside a tensor is an uh, integer, but, you know, it's a tensor. So it's a, it's a kind of a, a kind of a block that's that shared a an external exponent, so that's basically the, the main difference.
0: Why is FlexPoint so useful and 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 flexible for these deep learning operations that we're talking about?
1: Right. So so the first uh, question is uh, whether the deep learning training workloads can still be carried out in 16 bit uh, floating point and the the answer is no if you just naively just translate all the you know cast all the numbers into a you know a floating point 16 uh, bit with, with for every element and usually for a lot of cases you you take a a hit in your performance and Number two question is whether we can basically use a sixteen-bit integer. I shall remind people here that a kind of a sixteen-bit integer actually has all the sixteen bits uh, for its mantissa, so it's kind of has a kind of higher precision uh, than the eleven bits mantissa for the floating point. But also, if you just do a fixed point kind of 16-bit uh, training for deep neural networks it, it also doesn't work uh, unless you have kind of a dynamic kind of or tensor by tensor exponent management so so basically that's why fixed uh, flex point works well it's basically just just taken the um, advantages of both uh, fixed point and fle- uh, floating point so it has a uh, very Efficient representation like the 16-bit integers for for every element But at the same time for every tensor as a whole it can kind of slide its dynamic range along the scale Like a floating point
0: and you get these Hardware advantages But there is the cost of this added complexity of managing an exponent Can you explain what that means? What does it mean to have to manage an exponent at this numerical representation level,
1: this is uh, basically an added complexity because for every integer tensor in FlexPoint, it, it, they share all the integers share an exponent, and this exponent is external. So basically, that means as far as your accelerator hardware is concerned, every tensor is an integer tensor, but the host computing you know device will keep track of this ex- external exponent. And it needs to be managed because the exponent should change to adjust the dynamic range when the uh, scale of the tensor changes across different you know, elements of your network. And, and each value in your network may also change uh, dramatically during the course of training. So this is where the exponent mani- management comes in. And the exponent management actually is done independent from the accelerator hardware. It's on the host.
0: When you were designing this system, can you describe the process of testing it?
1: Basically, for testing, you know, typically you need to establish the benchmark. So in this particular case, it's pretty easy. So we basically compare with a thirty-two bit floating point and sixteen bit floating floating point, and you know, basically single precision, half precision. Uh, number one, you know, single precision is de facto standard right here. So most of the network are trained uh, in in this in single precision. And actually, if you take any recent papers of a new network, all the results reported are pretty there. So it's a it's a very natural thing to compare to. And the second is, in order to go down to sixteen bit, we can also try to have a floating like half precision, a sixteen bit floating point number for every element of the tensor. And basically, we can just compare these against floating point 32 bit and our results basically showed that in a few cases we showed three cases these are all uh, convolutional nets and we found that in all of the cases a flex point a 16 bit actually worked pretty well given the uh, algorithm what we call the auto flex basically this is the algorithm that manage the exponent while if you have a kind of a naive uh, casting into a floating point 16-bit, uh, in many cases, it doesn't faithfully match the original training process.
0: And what's the plan for rolling out this technology?
1: Well, I think, so basically, this is the underlying technology uh, of our uh, NNP. And I think this is a, a interesting trend that we see in new hardware, deep learning hardware design for a for for low precision, especially in training, uh, which is that we basically have kind of a uh, co-design of your algorithm. In this particular case, it's really not the algorithm of the network itself, but some kind of low-level numerical algorithm that's detached from the operations on the hardware itself. So basically, we use as cheap as possible operations on hardware. In this case, a 16-bit integer arithmetic on hardware so as far as the hardware is concerned you know all the numbers that's being crunched that inside the tensor are integers and these are really expensive operations traditionally because you know every element of the tensor have, have to undergo this this operation but we kind of offload other what we call exponent management here operations onto the host and these these operations actually do not scale with the uh, dimensionality of tensors, and actually it's constant for each tensor. So for typical problems like training a deep neural network where you have huge tensors, this external management overhead is actually pretty negligible. So I will predict that this kind of design will be pretty powerful and popular in the future so that we have accelerators that take care of very dense operations in a very low precision, but externally, you have some kind of kind of you know operations that does not scale with dimensionalities of the problem, that can be uh, effectively managed in the in the software in the, in the in the algorithm.
0: Okay, so I think we've we've talked at length about this hardware advancement. I want to zoom out once again. We talked a little bit earlier about. NIPS And you've mentioned AlphaGo Zero. What was exciting about AlphaGo Zero for you? So my understanding is that this was a, they generalized AlphaGo, which was a system that learned to play Go and beat all of the humans. And they have generalized it to work for any system
1: right so i i think you know this is a actually a very good point and and i think every year at nips you see some kind of new theme emerging and i think this year uh, there there are actually quite a few but i think the most impressive thing for me is to see how uh, meta learning is 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 taking off and this is basically a kind of learning learning to learn if you may so i think in a, in the past few years all the very exciting Papers that you see that achieved like beats human level, you know, uh, performance. For example, in image classification, like ResNet, uh, these are all like you know, engineering on this you know structure of the network itself. Also, tuning the the, the parameters, hyperparameters. You know, so th- these are also like traditional uh, kind of uh, you know engineering of of the the network topology. So it's just like in you know back in. Many years ago, that, you know, in computer vision, people are using handcrafted features. We're basically now using networks, but we're kind of handcrafting hyperparameters, handcrafting topologies. It still kind of uh, requires, you know, the, a lot of data to, to train. But, you know, for meta learning, you can actually use uh, very, you know, a, a very few data points and you can actually uh, come up in a very principled way, uh, network structures and its hyperparameters. So, and and also combined with a lot of traditional deep uh, machine learning techniques, together with deep neural networks, we see a lot of um, schemes are actually very useful. And I think in deep reinforcement learning, I think AlphaGo Zero is basically a kind of a very extreme case in which and you, you basically don't need any data uh, to, to train it. And all you need is the rule of the game.
0: Okay, well, you know, just to close off, I know you spent much of your career in biology, actually. And the earliest applications of deep learning to biology that I have seen are based around image detection. So you have things like people building systems that can diagnose diabetic retinopathy or heart disease or skin cancer. Given your experience and your time at NIPS, what's going to be the next wave of deep learning applications within health?
1: Well, I'm I'm basically trained as a neuroscientist, a computational neuroscientist, and it's actually you know, you can say a lot of deep learning, deep neural network ideas actually stems from neuroscience at the beginning. But you know, this is really a, a kind of abstract mathematical idea, and we actually see in the field of neuroscience that modern data science and machine learning has actually helped a lot because. The field of neuroscience itself is very data intense, and you know, and these days we're, we're, you know, experimenters are getting a lot of data out of the nervous system, the brain itself. So I think you know this this you know a lot of data and using uh, techniques like deep learning actually really helped a lot in understanding the brain so but for the future i, I would like to see actually and and i think it's going to happen uh, it happens uh, you know the 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 influence going in the other direction again so just like you know originally you know we have the the abstract artificial neural networks uh, inspired from uh, biological principles, maybe a high level understanding of how the brain works may also influence machine learning. Again, I think this is probably going to be uh, a very interesting and very high impact revolutionary change in the future if it happens.
0: Hopefully, it'll be powered by FlexPoint.
1: I'm not very sure about that, but uh, we certainly hope uh, (laughs) a lot of hardware innovations is going to help in this way.
0: Okay. All right, Chen. Well, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you about the recent advances in deep learning.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. Wow.